This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth, professors at Penn Engineering. We are speaking with them today about their new book titled The Ethical Algorithm, The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. Uh, Michael and Aaron, thank you so much for joining us on Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I guess the obvious question to begin with, uh, uh, Michael, perhaps could start with you, is what prompted you to write about ethical algorithms? Why is this such a critical issue? And can software really have a moral character? Yeah. um, I mean, so the origins of the book, I think, really um, begin with our recent um, scientific research. So we are both kind of long-standing machine learning researchers, um, and especially on the algorithmic side. And um, we're part of a growing community of machine learning researchers that have kind of watched as the field has grown and found more and more applications and then consequent kind of collateral damages that result from that, such as violations of privacy due to machine learning, um, the fielding of unfair discriminatory models that I imagine we'll talk more about. And so... um, we kind of watched society and the media become more and more alarmed about these instances and also start suggesting kind of, um, you know, regulatory solutions, legal solutions, all of which, you know, we also think are necessary and good stuff. But we also knew that, you know, we and others were working on making the algorithms better in the first place, right? You know, if an algorithm has known privacy issues or fairness issues, you could think about redesigning the algorithm um, so that these problems don't happen in the first place. And this is not a solution to all of these problems, but for many it is, and it's something that you can do now. And the science of it is quite interesting also, we think, because we work in the field. And so we wanted to try to explain to a, a lay audience kind of what was going on in the field, what things you could do, what the costs of implementing more fair or more private solutions are. Um, And maybe I'll let Aaron take the question about the moral character of algorithms. Sure. So I think it's not so much that algorithms themselves have a moral character, but rather that as we start replacing human decision makers with algorithmic decision making procedures in parts of decision-making pipelines. And we're doing this, by the way, at a large scale. So human resources departments now use algorithms to guide both hiring and compensation decisions. Uh, Lending uh, institutions make uh, credit decisions as the basis of algorithms. And here in Pennsylvania, for example, um, both parole and bail decisions are informed in part by algorithms. So you know, when human beings are residing in these important decision-making pipelines, there's various social norms that we expect them to respect. We expect them to be fair. We expect them to you know, have some kind of due process. We want them to protect privacy. And the problem is when, you know, the, the algorithms that we are putting into these pipelines uh, aren't the kind of old-fashioned hand-coded algorithms that maybe, you know, some listeners uh, learned about in college if they took like a CS 101 kind of class. Instead, these are the output of machine learning uh, processes. And, you know, nowhere in in a machine learning training procedure is a human being like sitting down and coding everything the algorithm should do in every circumstance. Rather, 
they're specifying some objective function, and usually it's some narrow objective function, like they want to maximize their accuracy or maximize their profit. And then they're letting um, some optimization procedure go and find the model that best does that. Now, the only thing you can expect from the output of this kind of process is that the, the algorithm you get out at the end is going to be really good as measured with respect to this narrow objective function. But what we've seen in the last decade is that there are often unanticipated and undesirable side effects, mm -hmm. things that end up being sort of discriminatory, for example. Right. Uh, and so, so it's not so much that the algorithms have a moral character as we need to learn how to specify what we want, not just in terms of um, our overall you know, objective, something like accuracy or profit, but, but we need to learn how to tell the algorithms uh, how to be fair, how to be private. No, I think those are all great points, and I'm sure we'll talk about them in some more detail. But I was very struck by what you said about you know, the, the, the large number of news stories that have been appearing that talk about uh, you know, uh, fields like mortgage lending or HR and hiring and how the, the, the kind of bias that creeps in. Now, as you researched your book, uh, which uh, examples of this kind that you found surprised you the most? I don't, I don't think that we were particularly surprised by, for instance, any media story that we've heard, um, or at least not surprised that technically these things could happen. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, speaking for myself, the things that surprised me most was that, first of all, that, you know, kind of even the people deploying these algorithms sometimes would be surprised that these things could happen. Mm -hmm. um, so people who should know better um, didn't. Um, and often, you know, I was surprised by kind of the scale of the damage done or the stakes involved. You know, so there was just this very nice paper by some colleagues of ours that came out in Science last week that got quite a bit of attention um, about, you know, um, some company that builds a predictive model on behalf of hospitals for um, predictive health care, deciding, you know, who, who needs treatments of various kinds. And as a convenience, you know, because sort of actually assessing somebody's overall health might be a rather complicated, expensive thing to do and might not be that objective, um, they instead used health care costs as a proxy because money is easy to measure. It's easy to sort of see, okay, this person's health care has cost this much over the last five years, for instance. And it turned out when they just trained the model, you know, to sort of equate um, health care costs with health, um, they badly discriminated against minority and disadvantaged groups who um, the model falsely learned were less in need of care because they had cost less, but they had cost less just because they had poorer access to health care. And so these kinds of things, I think, you know, if you work in the field or especially the corner of the field that tries to address these ethical issues, you would know from the beginning that you should be very worried about training your algorithm on this proxy objective rather than the real thing that you're, you care about, which is health. And so, you know, I wasn't surprised by what had technically happened in that article, but I was kind of surprised that, um, you know, it was being used, for instance, in many, many, many large hospitals. Yeah. So, I mean, echoing Michael, I mean, lots of the recent articles um, aren't so surprising in that, you know, it's it's more of the same. But 
if you go back to 2016, there was a, a really nice um, expose by ProPublica, which has gotten a lot of attention since then, but I would say um, played a big part in kicking off a lot of the academic study in this area. And what they looked into were these um, commercial recidivism prediction tools that were used to inform um, parole decisions, uh, in this case, in, in Broward County, Florida. And what these tools would do is they would try to predict the risk that a particular inmate, if paroled, would uh, commit a crime again within the next 18 months if released. And, and this was given as a... Um, piece of information to judges when they were deciding whether to parole inmates or not. And uh, what ProPublica found is that if you looked at the false positive rates of these tools, and what that means is the rate at which people who ultimately would not go on to commit crimes were mistakenly labeled as high risk, Hmm. then the false positive rates were much higher among African Americans than among Caucasians. Um, so ProPublica wrote a, you know, um, very widely distributed, um, expose about this saying the, the compass tool, uh, was unfair. But what was interesting about this really was, um, not just the article itself, but the follow-up. So the company that built this tool called North Point, although they've since changed their name, um, responded by saying, Actually, our, we, you know, we, we've thought carefully about this and our algorithm is fair. Uh, but what they meant by fair was something different. What, what they meant was that their um, tool was just as accurate on both populations. It was equally well calibrated. So what that means is that if, if they said that someone uh, was going to go on to commit a crime 70% of the time, then... That meant the same thing, whether or not the, per- the person was African-American or Caucasian, meaning you know, 70% of the people that the tool labeled as likely to commit a crime 70% of the time actually did go on to commit crimes. And they said mm-hmm. they'd worked hard to make sure that um, this signal meant the same thing. It was equally well calibrated on both populations. And there are good reasons to want this, too. And one of the really interesting things about this um, this back and forth, which took place in the media, was that it spurred a couple of um, pieces of academic work, which ultimately showed that it was mathematically impossible to simultaneously satisfy this fairness notion that that North Point had in mind, and the fairness notion that ProPublica uh, had in mind. Even though they were both desirable, they were fundamentally at odds with one another. And I think this was really interesting and, and was a was a big Kickstarter to the academic work in this area. Well, that sounds very interesting. And I I wonder if uh, I could ask both of you about uh, where some of the sources of bias lie. I mean, so it sounds from what you're saying that if these algorithms tend to discriminate, it's not because the software developers themselves are biased in some way, but it's because perhaps the underlying data that is used to train the algorithms might yeah. have some problems. If you could explain yeah, that, that to that, our audience. That that, that's exactly to. right. And I, you know, we try to make this point early and often in the book, um, which is the way machine learning works these days. You know, Many of your listeners have probably heard about deep learning where you build sort of very, very complicated neural networks um, trained on 
huge amounts of data requiring many, many CPU cycles. Um, so, you know, you have some training data set and you have a very principled algorithm for searching for a model that, let's say, minimizes the error on that training set. And, you know, this is kind of, in a nutshell, the underlying scientific principle of machine learning. You know, pick a class of models, neural networks, decision trees, linear regression, whatever. Get a large training set and, you know, fit your model to that training set in the hopes that it'll generalize to new data from the same process. And, um, and, and so you're right, you know, the algorithms used by practitioners in machine learning, um, if you look at them, they're, they're actually quite transparent. They're not complicated. They don't look like the source code to Grand Theft Auto or anything nearly <laughs> that complicated. They're, they're very short. They're very simple. And they're encoding a scientific principle. And, you know, perhaps even more disturbingly, the problem is with the scientific principle in the first place, not with the people implementing it or the algorithm implementing it. And the problem with the principle is kind of echoing things that we've already said, is that, you know, when you pick an objective and you optimize for that objective, you shouldn't expect to get absolutely anything else for free that you didn't specify. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I optimize for error, I shouldn't expect that magically, um, if there are two different racial populations in my training data, that they will be treated the same by the model that I produce, right? Because I didn't say anything about that when I said minimize the error. And especially when you're training very rich models like neural networks, if, you know, if there's some little corner of this incredibly complicated high-dimensional model space where, you know, a small fraction of a percent of error can be squeezed out at the expense of racial discrimination, that algorithm is going to go for it, right? And so, you know, much of what our book is about is kind of we kind of identify this problem in kind of layperson's terms in the introduction. Mm -hmm. And much of the rest of the book is, is saying like, okay, if that's the problem, how do you fix it? And how do you fix it in the algorithm? And to a first approximation, I think it's fair to say you need to modify the objective function right. to balance um, error with other considerations like fairness or privacy. And the kind of next big lesson that one takes away from that is that, you know, if I want to, if I want more fairness from my models, it's generally going to cost me something. It should generally, it's generally going to cost me more accuracy mm -hmm. because now I'm essentially constraining what was before an unconstrained process. You're absolutely right when you say that the source of this bad behavior is not, you know, some malintent of a, you know, an evil software engineer behind the screens. Um, and and that makes it a bit harder to regulate, right? It's not enough to just disincentivize people to deploy bad models. You have, you actually have to like figure out what is the source of the uh, problematic behavior and and how to fix it. And there's a couple of different sources. Um, there's a couple of different things that can lead to this bad behavior, and that's part of what makes this complicated. So. Um, one of them, as you said, is just bias like that's already latent in the data. And that's maybe like the less surprising source. So, for example, um, to, you know, refer to another media story, um, 
an HR group at Amazon was developing a resume screening tool. So the idea was not to automatically make hiring decisions, but to take a first pass over all of the resumes submitted to Amazon, maybe pick out one in 10 and you know, send them to, to you know, human hiring managers. Um, and it was trained on past um, hiring decisions made by those same human hiring managers at Amazon. And what they found, and this tool, you know, fortunately they, they discovered this before deploying it, but what they found was that um, the tool was explicitly downweighting resumes that had the word women in it or, or that included uh, the names of several women's colleges. Um, again, nobody intentionally did this, but, but this was somehow predictive of decisions that you know, human hiring managers had made at Amazon before. And so, of course, this is a problem, and in some sense, it's not surprising, like, because machine learning algorithms are only trying to find patterns in the data you give them. There's no reason to think they're going to um, remove biases that are already present in the data. Uh, and that's a big problem, but maybe the one that's not so surprising. But, but basically, that's not the only problem. Even if you somehow solve that one, and it's a big problem, but even if you somehow solve that one, you're not done for the reasons that that Michael said, um, and the ProPublica example again is a good one. You know, there there may be all sorts of biases um, that are already latent in arrest data, but this impossibility result that I alluded to that it that it's not possible to simultaneously um, make mistakes in the harmful direction uh, for two populations and be equally accurate on those two populations. Like that's just some mathematical fact that is true whether or not there's any bias latent in the data, right? And so even if you somehow solve the data collection problem, you're not done and you have to think about how to solve what are in the end these big optimization problems in a way that trades off all sorts of other resources, you know, things that you care about other than accuracy. Yeah. And that's a lot of what our book is about. Right. Uh, one of the stories, uh, it's a fascinating story that you tell in your book about privacy violations. Uh, you wrote about uh, a medical, uh, r- medical records in Massachusetts, uh, which were supposed to be anonymous, uh, but there was a PhD student from MIT who actually tracked down Governor William Wells' Uh, medical records uh, uh, based on, you know, combining that with some publicly available information. Uh, I wonder if you could tell our audience that story and, and what it what does it teach us about the importance of safeguarding uh, what is private and sensitive information? Yeah. Um, you know, so, so briefly, the story is that in the state of Massachusetts, um, there was a natural desire to on the one hand, protect the privacy of individual medical records, but on the other hand, be able to use people's medical histories for scientific research um, to find better treatments, better drugs, et cetera. And so this is an ongoing tension between, in, in, in sort of privacy, algorithmic privacy, um, the tension between wanting to make use of valuable data but protect um, the private parts of that data. Um, and so this particular story, you know, to great fanfare, the state of Massachusetts announced that they'd figured out, you know, a way of allegedly anonymizing p- 
people's um, medical records, you know, by, by things like redacting certain fields, like, you know, not including your name and your address, for instance, and maybe only the first three digits of your zip code. And they said, well, this, you know, should, this should reassure everybody whose medical records are in these databases that it's safe to use them for scientific research or even to kind of publicize them. And uh, Latanya Sweeney, the graduate student that you mentioned, you know, was skeptical about this, and she basically, um, you know, took those data sets that had been made publicly available by the state, and by combining that with other things that she was able to get from other publicly available data sources, like, um, you know, just census types of data, she was able to essentially re-identify specific individuals in the data set, in particular, William Weld, governor of Massachusetts. And... Um, in the privacy chapter of the book, you know, we start off with this example and and use it to further argue that, you know, it's not just that this was a bad idea in this case or that it was done poorly. It's that notions of privacy that are based on anonymity, which unfortunately include virtually all of the privacy policies kind of in wide-scale practical commercial use today. Um, are fundamentally flawed. And in a nutshell, the reason they're fundamentally flawed is that, as Latanya Sweeney showed, you know, they pretend like the data set that's in front of us is the only data set that exists in the entire world and that will ever exist in the entire world. And this is just not the world that we live in. And so once I start combining and triangulating and linking many different data sources, um, I can kind of re-identify particular individuals in the data set. And I think this is part of this other phenomenon that people are, you know, th that even um, ordinary citizens are being made aware of, is that lots of things about you that you might think are innocuous and irrelevant um, and aren't particularly trying to hide at all might be highly predictive of um, things that you wouldn't want to make public. So um, in particular, there was a very nice paper a number of years ago now where researchers showed that just by looking at the, the likes of Facebook users, the pieces of content on which they clicked the thumbs up button, using only that data, no other data, no demographic data about you, nothing about you and your friends on Facebook or what you post, just the sequence of things that you liked, they showed using machine learning that um, to statistical accuracy, you could predict um, from people's like behavior their drug and alcohol use, um, their sexuality, um, whether they are the child of divorced parents, and many other things that you know you just might not think reveal that you know reveal that much, but actually do. Yeah. So, so Latanya Sweeney, who I want to add, is now a professor at Harvard. So she was a graduate <laughs> student at the time, but now she's a famous professor. Um, really helped kick off the sort of study of data privacy. Um, and for a long time, um, solutions to data privacy problems were sort of really ad hoc. So, right. um, you know, what, what this, what Latanya's original study, you know, showing that you could re-identify you know, William Weld's medical record um, really demonstrated is that, okay, anonymization is not enough. Removing people's names is not enough because there's a lot of other information out there that... Um, idiosyncratically identifies you, and so if I can cross-reference that with some other data set, I can figure out who you are. The, the question I meant to ask, of course, yeah. is uh, 
what could have been done to protect the privacy? And maybe you were going there yeah, already. It, exactly. So um, for a long time, people tried to answer that question by just responding to the most recent attacks. So the you know the solution to the you know, the proposed solution to the uh, William Weld re-identification was something called K anonymity, which was really an attempt to just patch up data anonymization to prevent that specific attack. So, you know, roughly K anonymity says, well, okay, we should, you know, course in the information we release so that there's no record that corresponds to just one person. So you can't re-identify someone. But, okay, it turns out that there are other other ways you can attack something like that. For example, if I have two data sets that are both, you know, K-anonymous, it turns out now I can again uniquely identify someone. And for a while, um, this is how the science of data privacy progressed. People uh, proposed some new patch that would protect against the most recently discovered privacy attack, and then more clever attackers would would come along and, and show that what was done was still not sufficient. And this was really a losing game for the, uh, for the people on the side of privacy. So... The big breakthrough happened in in 2006 when a group of mathematical computer scientists proposed what is now known as differential privacy. Mm. And this was um, really a proposal that was different in kind. It wasn't imposing some syntactic constraint that said, you know, okay, if you release a table of numbers that looks like this, then it counts as private, otherwise it doesn't. It was really, um, for the first time, an attempt to define like what the promise of privacy was intended to be for a particular individual. And after a couple of false starts, what was settled upon was the following. There should be no statistical test that can distinguish like better than random guessing whether the results of the study that were published were arrived at by looking at the entire data set as it is, or instead by looking at the data set that had, for example, your data removed but was otherwise identical. And the reason why something like this corresponds to privacy is if you think about um, a study that's conducted without having access to your data at all, then really you don't want to say that that study violated your privacy, like your privacy specifically, because after all, um, your data wasn't even used. And so if there's no way for anyone to tell whether the study that was conducted used your data or not in a, in a rigorous mathematical sense, then, well, maybe we should also say that this corresponds to some guarantee of privacy. And once you have a definition of this sort that specifies actually what you want. And by the way, it's a definition that has a, a little knob that I didn't mention that can sort of dial up or down how much privacy you want. Because the definition says there should be almost no way of distinguishing um, whether your data was used or not, but, but almost is the knob that we can turn. That's a quantitative measure. W- once you have a a definition of what you want out of a guarantee of privacy, you can start to now design algorithms and reason about trade-offs. How well can we do various statistical analyses? How well can we do machine learning um, with different guarantees of privacy? Mm-hmm. And there are real trade-offs, but um, they're more mild than you might have feared. 
and, and, and that sort of kicked off um, over the last 15 years, I'd say the, you know, real scientific field of data privacy, which is only just now starting to turn into useful technology. Now, in addition to privacy, the other theme that sort of looms large in the book is uh, fairness, as we've just discussed. And I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about how algorithms become unfair and and who is harmed when that happens. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about how it happens already. Um, you know, how it happens is kind of by omission in a way. I, you know, right. learn some complicated model using training data from, let's say, individual citizens or consumers. I don't mention anything about fairness. I don't say that, um, look, in this lending model, um, you don't want the um, false rejection rate, like, you know, the 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 rate at which I'm rejecting people that are creditworthy or would repay a loan, I don't want that false rejection rate to differ wildly between white and black people. Right. If I don't say that, I'm not going to get it. And I should expect there to be some disparity. And it often goes in the direction, you know, the, against racial minorities, for instance. Um, so, so what you need to do to fix that um, is, you know, you and, and here's where things start to get interesting. It's, you know, step one is I identifying the problem. Um, to fix it, you need to sort of say like, okay, um, what's the right definition of fairness? And as Aaron has already pointed out, there can even be like hard conflicts between different definitions of fairness, each of which is entirely reasonable and desirable in isolation. Um, most, Most definitions of fairness in kind of wide use these days or wide study um, are kind of of the variety that we've been discussing. So what does that mean? So I first need to sort of identify what group or groups I'm worried about being harmed. And then I need to decide what constitutes harm to that group. And then what I do is I literally write into my objective function that says, look, the problem is now no longer minimize the error on the training data. It is minimize the error subject to the constraint that the false loan rejection rate on black people and white people um, has to be at most, you know, 1%, 5%, 10%. And importantly, just as with differential privacy, as Aaron just discussed, notice there's a knob again here. I could ask that that disparity be 0%, 1%, 10%. And, you know, the smaller I make that value, the more constrained the problem is. And the, the less I make it, if I allow the rates to differ by 100%, that's like ignoring fairness entirely. And so you, again, can literally sweep out a quantitative trade-off between error and unfairness. Now, so these, these definitions are, are widely studied and widely used. And they have some some known serious flaws as well. So one serious flaw is that they're really only providing guarantees at the aggregate level to the group and not to the individuals. So for instance, you know, under this definition, um, the neural network um, learns a you know the, a, a neural network has learned that equalizes the false rejection rates between black and white people. But it's not saying that those rates are zero. In machine learning, you're, you're always going to have some error. You're going to make mistakes. It's, you know, it's statistics, okay? So 
um, you know, let's say that you learn a neural network and the rate of false rejection on both white and black populations is 17%. So if you are a, one of the black people that is falsely rejected by for a loan, you're in that 17%, you're you know, what is your compensation, your consolation? Your consolation is the knowledge that white people are being mistreated at exactly the same rate, okay? So, you know, if you were that person, this might not seem very satisfying or like a notion of fairness to you at all. There is a much smaller and more recent body of work trying to really provide stronger definitions of fairness that give guarantees at the individual level. The problem, though, is you can't go to the logical extreme of kind of treating everybody as being in a group by themselves, right? Because then, you know, I need to either be correct on everybody if I'm going to equalize the rate of, you know, false rejection across everybody, or I have to make a mistake on everybody, right? And neither the first thing is kind of unachievable and the second thing is undesirable. Um, but this is kind of the flavor of the underlying science. Um, and um, a couple of things that are sometimes um, misconceptions about the book, perhaps invited by the title, The Ethical Algorithm. One is that you know we are definitely not suggesting that algorithms themselves develop their own social norms and decide that this is what fairness should mean or this is what privacy should mean. Right. You know, scientific researchers and um, policymakers and stakeholders and regulators and philosophers and ordinary people should be participating in discussions that kind of pick those definitions. Um, you know, the 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 other very hard part um, that is sort of again kind of outside of the boundaries of science is well, who are you worried about being harmed, mm. and why are you worried about them being harmed, and are you protecting them? Um, you know for some um, contemporaneous reason? Are you protecting them to redress a past wrong? And as you can imagine, all these topics quickly bleed into very thorny issues that have been dealt with for a very long time, like affirmative action and other types of laws and policies. And all of those things should inform kind of what the science looks like. Um, And what the science can do is sort of make things scientific, but it can't tell society um, you should protect this group and not that group, and for this reason. Right. I, I was trying to think about examples of harm. Uh, so one extreme example that came to mind is the so-called trolley problem, which has emerged in a completely new form because of autonomous vehicles. Uh, so if uh, an autonomous car loses control and the algorithm must choose between saving the lives of pedestrians or the driver, how should this dilemma be resolved? Uh, who should be saved and who should be allowed to die? So there's been a lot of focus on the trolley problem recently because of uh, autonomous vehicles, um, you, you know, in large part because it's a, you know, dramatic. Very dramatic. <laughs> it's a dramatic it's, it's problem. It's a life and death decision. But, but I think um, focus has been misplaced on it. That's not the main problem, which is to say... Um, it's extremely it would be extremely rare that an autonomous vehicle would like find itself in a position where it where it needs some moral solution to the trolley problem uh which isn't to say it's not fun to think about and you know like you know ultimately you do need to write code but i think 
even with autonomous vehicles, the same kinds of seemingly more mundane issues um, that you think about when you're just training, you know, simple statistical models are really the more important ones. So, for example, um, let's go back to, to thinking about simple statistical models and who they harm. Michael mentioned often they harm the minority. Well, the reason for that is pretty simple. Like, what does it mean to be a minority population? Well, there, there's fewer data points for a minority population. Uh, and so it, it's often the case that different populations have different statistical properties. And if the model can't fit both of them simultaneously, and you ask it to minimize its overall error, it's just going to fit the majority population because the majority of population contributes more to overall error. Well, okay, let's think about that in a self-driving car context. There's different uh, driving environments. Driving in a city is very different than driving in a rural wooded area. And it's quite likely that um, self-driving cars, both now and in some future deployment, will get a lot more training data um, about well-populated areas because that's where the people are. Um, And so I think it's likely, for example, that error rates for the predictive models in self-driving cars, which might translate now into into rates of accidents, are going to um, you know, be better optimized, for example, um, in populous regions of the country. And so I think that's the kind of um, fairness issue that you know and, and maybe moral issue that you might eventually start to worry about with self-driving cars which is that okay like you know maybe we deploy this new technology and it has a lower rate of accidents overall and similar issues come up with with uh, automating medical decisions we deploy some new automated you know method for predictive medicine and it's got a uh, lower patient mortality rate overall but you can start to dig deeper and ask okay well you know, the mistakes that these models do make, how are they distributed? And you often find that they're not distributed uniformly. And in fact, even if these models are lowering the the rate of um, errors of accidents uh, compared to, you know, com- compared to the human status quo overall, um, it might be actually causing more harm than the status quo in certain populations in certain um, segments. And and so I think that kind of thing is going to be much more consequential than the trolley problem. On a related note, I mean, something that's kind of equally a parlor game is the trolley problem, but perhaps um, is worthy of more serious contemplation is just the question about are there certain types of decisions that even if they can be made algorithmically and maybe made algorithmically more accurate than human beings can make them, that we still don't want algorithms to be making um, for for moral reasons. Um, and you know, we discussed this briefly towards the end of the book. And you know, one example um, that I think is often given in this category is in automated warfare. You know, so maybe we are already in or soon approaching a future in which you know targeted assassination of enemies or terrorists by drone technology in a fully autonomous mode um, is more accurate than human beings um, can can provide mm. um, and and you know so this would mean you know 
getting the target more often and causing fewer collateral deaths or damage. But maybe um, even if we get to that point, we just don't want fully autonomous um, warfare systems like this because we might feel that we really want a human being that has the capacity for moral agency to be the one that actually pulls the trigger, so to speak. Um, and even if they might do so less accurately, we, you know, it's it's one of these things where when you when an algorithm makes the decision, it changes something about the moral character of the decision. And maybe sometimes we just don't want algorithms to be doing that, even though they're better at it than us. So as as you were speaking and and speaking even earlier about the solutions to these some of these issues, uh, I was reminded one one of the things you say in the book is a new acronym has come up called FATE. Uh, and I was wondering if you could, uh, you know, explain what that stands for and and how uh, this is, this kind of thinking is being used by, in different industries as people try to weigh the trade-offs between fairness and accuracy. Yeah. So, so FATE uh, stands for fairness, accountability, transparency, and ethics. And uh, as far as I know, it was actually coined by the Microsoft Research uh, New York City lab that that thinks about these things. Um, and these these issues, fairness, accountability, transparency, I think the, the E at the end there is mostly made to stop the acronym from being fat. Uh, <laughs> these are some of the um, main, I would say, social norms that people worry are going to go out the window as we start replacing human decision makers with uh, algorithms. So we already talked quite a bit about fairness, but... People also worry about accountability and transparency. One of the things that people like about human decision makers is that um, if if the decision doesn't go your way, if you're denied a loan, for example, in principle you can ask them, "How come? Why did you why did you make that decision?" Uh, and right, so that's sort of wanting an explanation. Um, and you can ask them about process, right? Sometimes when people talk about fairness, they don't mean just about outcomes. They, they, they mean uh, something about the process. And if, if, if there was some malfeasance, right, if, if the decision didn't go your way because someone um, didn't do their job properly, then often there's a way to figure out who that was and ask for some kind of accountability. And, and these are um, some of the things that keep you know, our society functioning when when human beings are um, manning every part of the decision-making system. But as we talked about a little bit already, you know, the models that are the outcome of machine learning uh, pipelines can often be inscrutable, right? The training procedures themselves are not, but like the outcome, like the actual model that's used, for example, to make lending decisions, if it's a deep neural network, it might have, you know, a million parameters, each of which is some, you know, number. And so you might want to, you might still want to ask, why wasn't I given a loan? And it's not clear anymore what the right answer for that is. You know, I can tell you what the objective function was that I optimized, what the data set I used was. I, I could tell you the vector of a billion numbers that I, you know, that, that specify the model that denied you alone. But um, it's no longer clear 
when you don't have human decision makers, what an explanation even means. Um, when you talk about accountability, you know, if the model is doing harm to, to you or to a group of people like you, um, since, as we said, it's, it's no longer because of some, you know, software engineer with bad intent hiding behind the curtain. It, it was sort of an unanticipated side effect. It's no longer clear whose fault it was. Yeah. Um, and, and so these are big, important questions that we're only beginning to grapple with. So we spend a lot of the book talking about privacy and fairness, not because those are more important than accountability and transparency, but because there's more to say about them scientifically. We know more about them. We've made more progress specifying precisely what we mean and thinking about how to accomplish them. But when you start talking about explainability, transparency, accountability, we are maybe where the privacy literature was 20 years ago, where, you know, there are sort of ad hoc things that you can try to do that seem okay, but ultimately probably aren't going to work because we went about it backwards. We didn't specify first what we wanted and then uh, thought about how to get it. We, you know, we just did something. So this is where um, e explainability in machine learning is right now. People will do something. They say, okay, I'll, I'll just train a decision tree and they'll assert that that is explainable. And I think what needs to happen to solve these problems, just as it did for privacy and it's starting to do for fairness, is um, an understanding of what exactly we mean when we say that we want accountability or transparency or explainability. I wonder if we could switch a little bit to uh, the regulatory environment. Uh, and and, and uh, when we talk about fairness and privacy, of course, at some point, the regulators are going to get involved. And I wonder how you see this evolving in the U.S. in contrast to, say, Europe or even Asia. In Asia, I'm particularly uh, curious about China, because since China is emerging as, as a very major superpower in AI, uh, what's your thinking about how do they think similarly about these issues as the Western countries do? And if so, what, what should we expect? Yeah, I mean, maybe starting domestically and then kind of going further and further across <laughs> okay. the globe. Um, you know, I, I do think we are entering an era of upcoming algorithmic regulation, and um, and and I I mean that not just in the broad sense that's happening now, but even at the technical level. So I don't just mean things like okay, the FTC, you know, handing down a big judgment against Facebook for privacy violations, and then proposing a you know kind of settlement that largely is about um, internal controls at Facebook and procedures. I really think we are entering an era where regulators need to start contemplating demanding greater access to the actual underlying algorithms, models, and data being used by large tech companies and algorithmically auditing those um, pipelines for unfairness, for privacy violations, et cetera. So I, you know, I think the regulatory agencies need to become more technical themselves so that they're not in, you know, the situation we're in right now is that, um, you know, bad things happen on a big scale and then the regulators kind of come clean up in the sense of handing down a big fine and saying like, okay, don't do this again. 
I really think that those agencies need to become more data and algorithmically oriented themselves so that they can monitor misbehavior on an ongoing basis. Unless this sound too, you know, crazy for a tech audience, I would point out that, you know, Wall Street, which is, you know, certainly compared to the tech industry, much, much more highly regulated. The regulators, you know, they have data from the exchanges. They have they have data that no other party on Wall Street has. Um, and they use that data to spot, let's say, certain kinds of trading behavior like insider trading that is illegal. So they are kind of under the hood of the system and monitoring what's going on in that syst- those systems from the inside on an ongoing basis. And this is very far from the truth in the tech industry right now. Like the big tech companies, they're all huge consumers, users, developers, researchers of machine learning. But the regulatory agencies right now have no authority to say, we want to come in and we want to look at your data and we want to look at your models. And I think this needs to change. Going to Europe, I think, you know, it's clear that regulators, technology regulators in Europe have more power and leverage than they do in the U.S., but I still don't think they have this level of regulatory oversight. And even things like the GDPR, which, you know, looks very strong on paper, the problem with it is that it, you know, it pushes words like privacy around on the pages without anywhere saying what privacy should mean. It pushes words like a transparency in models around on the pages without ever saying what those things should mean. So even though it seems like a very strong you know, regulatory document, until you say what those things mean, it doesn't really have any teeth. I know personally very little about what the regulatory environment is in China. They're clearly a very, very big industry player in machine learning, and they are using machine learning in kind of, you know, governmental surveillance ways that um, are unique to China. Um, uh, So I don't know where that'll lead. It's certainly concerning um, to people like us, I think. Um, but I don't know what the actual checks and balances are on it internally in government in China, and I, I might fear that there aren't many. Yeah, I, I would um, e- echo the need for regulatory agencies to become more technically sophisticated and hire people who are uh, conversant with the science. And I'll, I'll use maybe privacy as a, a good case study because there's a bunch of different privacy regulations in the U.S., and there's there's good ones and bad ones. Um, so maybe the uh, one of the most important is HIPAA, the law regulating um, how health records can be shared. And this is very important because, for example, um, we would like to we would like to apply machine learning techniques to health records at a large scale to find cures for disease, but we can't if the data is um, compartmentalized and unable to be shared because of privacy concerns. So HIPAA was written um, back in the early days of the study of data privacy um, when people were still thinking in terms of anonymization, right? This, This approach that ultimately we now know, like, doesn't work. 
But unfortunately, that approach is sort of baked into HIPAA. So if you want to release data under the safe harbor provision of HIPAA, the way you're supposed to do that is by attempting to de-identify it and remove unique identifiers, things like name and others. Um, that's both not a very good way to protect privacy, and it limits the way in which you can use that data. For example, you can no longer see how anything correlates with any of the identifiers that you've removed. And, and that's hard to change because laws and regulations are sticky, right? You'd now have to get like Congress to pass a new law if you wanted to change that. On the other hand, um, census is also required to protect privacy, but the regulation governing census doesn't say what that means. And in this case, that was good because census was able to bring in scientists who, who actually knew what they were doing. So the, the chief scientist at census is John Abowd, and um, he, you know, faced with the need to protect privacy, was able to um, study the literature, find out what are the best practices, and um, and incorporate differential privacy. So all of the all of the statistical products released as part of the 2020 U.S. Census will be protected with differential privacy. And that's possible because, number one, census is regulated in the sense that they are required to protect privacy, but in such a way that they were able to um, rely on expert opinions. They were able to hire a chief scientist who could correctly interpret the science and figure out how to do that, as opposed to essentially being stuck with out-of-date regulation, which is, I think, the situation we are in when it comes to medical records. Yeah, just to add further to what you were saying, this approach of uh, very often companies or industries try to self-regulate in order to sidestep much more what they might consider much more draconian regulation from governments. And, and one of the things that I found very striking in your book is where you mentioned that if algorithms are badly behaved, maybe the solution is to have better behaved algorithms. And I was wondering if you could offer any examples where companies have used that approach to solve uh, these issues. Yeah, I think it's very early days. And, and let me, let me you know, um, maybe correct a misimpression I might have given about our views on a couple of things. So, um, you know, virtually all of the large tech companies are quite aware of the science that we're discussing, and many of them have large, very, very good groups of internal researchers who study algorithmic fairness, who study differential privacy, have made serious con contributions to the scientific literature on those topics. Um, you know, it, for the most part, those groups tend to be in sort of the research branches of the company, um, and and it's. It's harder to see, you know, these ideas actually make it into products and services. There have been some exceptions. So, um, for instance, Apple was one of the first companies to introduce differential privacy into one of its products, basically later versions of iOS, the operating system for, um, you know, iPhones, iPads, and the like, um, uses differential privacy to report to Apple um, sort of statistics about app usage on devices that are protected by differential privacy, um, but in a way that allows Apple to sort of make inferences that are quite accurate about aggregate population-wide app usage, 
without, you know, letting them figure out precisely what your app usage is. Um, and so I think we're seeing kind of uh, an increased rate of um, uses of differential privacy. I think what Aaron mentioned about the 2020 U.S. Census, this is this is kind of like the, the big moonshot for differential privacy coming up, and it's, it'll be quite interesting. And I think they're, you know, still working through a lot of the engineering details. Right. Um, fairness, um, maybe Aaron knows better, but I, I don't I don't think I've yet heard. And you know, when 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 these companies do these things, you know about it because it's good PR for them to say, oh, we are implementing differential privacy in this or that service. I don't think I yet know of any really major core service of one of the large tech companies in which they say, we have explicitly put in fairness safeguards into this algorithm or into this machine learning process. Um, but I think it's a matter of time before that thing starts to happen as well. You know, there haven't been any big announcements, but I know that both Google um, and LinkedIn have, and, and Spotify actually have teams thinking about these issues internally. Uh, so I'm sure that products are are being audited, at least with respect to these simple statistical fairness measures. Um, but I'd say also, like, it might be a little too early Um you know, it's only like 15 years after the introduction of differential privacy that it's starting to be a real technology that's ready to be put into practice. With with fairness, there's so much we don't understand. You know, what are the consequences of imposing these different fairness measures, which, remember, are, again, are um, mutually inconsistent with one another, that I would be skeptical of um, – Attempts to rush in and, and put them into practice today. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's nice about differential privacy is that it's this all-encompassing definition that's very strong. And you don't have to do something that you need to do in fairness that we discussed earlier, which is, you know, differential privacy, you just provide differential privacy to everybody at whatever level you want. In fairness, you have to start with like, okay, who am I trying to protect and who am I not trying to protect? And what constitutes harm? And so, you know, these are hard decisions, right? Um, and so I think not only is the science still more nascent there than compared to differential privacy, but there are these kind of policy or social decisions that the user of these definitions has to, has to make up front. And I think that, you know, that takes some time and thought. It, it sounds like it's not only a te technical issue, it's a much more of yeah. a social and ethical yeah. issue. Uh, so I have one sort of final question for each of you, and that is uh, many CEOs and corporate boards these days seem to be really worried that they face uh, risk-facing lawsuits if they ignore the risk of algorithmic bias. And if some CEOs were to come to each of you and say, what is your top recommendation to ensure that the algor algorithms in our company are ethical. What what would you suggest? Yeah, so I mean, my I think my suggestion would be simple: is you know, have people internally that think about this, and not just from a regulatory kind of HR policy standpoint. Have scientists and engineers that know this stuff, that are really looking at your use of machine learning, your algorithm development pipeline. And being vigilant about, you know, making sure you're not engaging in bad privacy practices, in um, discriminatory training, um, 
and you know, there's, there remains and I think will for a while this gulf between people who care about these topics that don't have quantitative training and people that care about these topics that do have a quantitative training. Training and and right now I think in many companies, you know, even when the two groups are simultaneously present, they're they're relatively well separated, and I I think it really is the time where computer scientists and statisticians and other sorts of people who are part of building these algorithms and models have a seat at the t- the sort of the policy you know C C level um, discussions about these things because otherwise. Um, you know, you're going to get it wrong. Yeah. I mean, I'd also say that, like, scientists and engineers who are conversant in these issues should be involved in product design from the get-go. Like, what you don't want to do is, you know, have a complete product ready to ship and then just show it to, for example, the the privacy legal team or some kind of legal team looking for discriminatory uh, outcomes. Because by then, it's often too late. Like as we've been discussing, these bad outcomes are really core to the like optimization that is central to how machine learning works. And um, if you want to make sure that your that your learning algorithms aren't vulnerable to legal challenge because of privacy issues or fairness issues. You have to design them from the beginning with those with, with these concerns in mind, and, and these are now not just policy questions, but technical questions. So it's important to to get people who understand the the science and the technology involved from an early stage. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I'll just quickly mention you know everything we've talked about here so far kind of covers the roughly the first half of the book, and um, you know just to let your viewer, your um, listeners know what happens in the second half of the book. In the second half, you know, I think it's fair to a first approximation to think about violations of privacy or discriminatory behavior by algorithms as situations in which, you know, people, individual people are victimized by algorithms. You know, you, you, you might be denied a loan even though you are creditworthy um, and, and you might not even know that an algorithm made that decision and it's causing sort of real harm to you, okay? In the second part of the book, um, we look at situations in which the users of an algorithm or an app themselves might be complicit in its antisocial behavior, um, if I might put it that way. And it's not so easy to entirely lay the blame exclusively on the algorithm. And these tend to be settings in which kind of the right quantitative tool to think about these problems is is game theory and economics because it has to do with settings where an, an app, for instance, is mediating all of our competing preferences. So I think the best – the cleanest example we give and, and, and use to sort of start this second part of the book – is one in is commuting apps, navigation apps like Waze and Google Maps, right? So, you know, on the one hand, what could be better than an app that has real-time traffic information about what everybody else is doing on the roads right now, and you plug in your source and your destination, and it optimizes your driving time. And, you know, if you're a game theorist and you look at that app, 
you know, there's a name for what it's doing. It is computing your best response in a multiplayer game in which the players are all of the drivers on the road. And it really is a competitive game, right? Because if Aaron and I are driving, you know, we are we are creating a negative externality for you in the form of traffic. You, Your selfish preference would be nobody drives except you and the roads are always entirely clear. And so you might ask like, well, how can this be a bad thing? How can it be a bad thing that we now all are using these apps which help us you know, selfishly optimize our driving time in response to what all the other drivers are doing? And anybody who's taken a little bit of game theory will know that just because we're at equilibrium doesn't mean it's a good thing, right? And in particular, there are concrete examples where our aggregate or collective driving time can actually increase due to the use of apps like this. And and we 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 kind of go from this point, you know, even further afield to point out that there's a lot of situations in which maybe it's not quite as mathematically clean as driving, but let's take newsfeed on Facebook. You can again think of that algorithm as optimizing for each of us selfishly. It's trying to, you know, as they say, maximize engagement. So what does maximize engagement mean? It means it wants to put into our newsfeed, you know, posts by the friends that we find more interesting rather than the ones we find less interesting, news articles that we're likely to click on perhaps because we agree with them rather than stuff that we find uninteresting or disagree with. So kind of like Google Maps and Waze, Newsfeed is selfishly optimizing for each of us. And again, from an individual perspective, you know, what could be better than hearing from the friends that you want to hear from and reading articles that you find interesting? But, you know, probably all of your listeners are quite aware that this has led to a debate about whether this has essentially put us in a bad equilibrium, an equilibrium where individually we're all kind of myopically happy, but it's led to perhaps a less deliberative democratic society due to polarization. And again, we think that there are actually, you know, maybe not algorithmic solutions to this problem, but algorithmic improvements that could be made. Um, you know, again, these would come at some cost, perhaps, to engagement or profitability, but the benefit might be kind of a more tolerant, deliberative society. Well, Michael, Aaron, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.